Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Uh, my next guest uh, was born in New York City in 1944 to uh, John Steinbeck and uh, Gwendolyn Steinbeck. And through the years, he, uh, he traveled with his father to, uh, to Europe and spent time in Pacific Grove and in Sag Harbor. At uh, one point, they spent the year traveling the world with a young teacher from Austin, Texas, who was the playwright Terrence McNally. And he, is, uh, he went to the UCLA Film School. He trained with Armed Forces Radio and Television in Fort Knox and later went to uh, Vietnam. He's uh, been working on scripts and novels. His first book, for which we uh, had a good conversation with him, is called Down to a Soundless Sea. And we also are pleased to welcome him back uh, for a new novel called The Silver Lotus. Will you please welcome Thomas Steinbeck to West Coast Live. How are you? It's a lovely little, it's a lovely little venue you've got going. It is. We like going exploring different venues. You know, this is called a platinum lead building because it's uh, totally ecologically uh, correct. Not that I'm in it now. <laughs> no, I've got a carbon footprint that goes on forever. I really do. Well, good. That'll help counterbalance the building then. Yeah, I think so. I make everybody feel better. About so were you homeschooled, in essence, when, when, when your dad would take you and your brother around? Would you, would you call well, it? No other form of education seemed to be working at the time. I was, <laughs> I was dragged from one expensive uh, 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 boys' prison prep school to another because we were moving all the time. And Some people come from broken families. I came from an explosive family. So bits and pieces of us landed almost everywhere. And of course, they were smart enough never to put my brother and myself in the same school. Uh, for, I don't think they could get an insurance writer that would cover it. <laughs> you know, so I was educated all over the place. And, uh, but I primarily say that if it really came down to it, I'm self-educated. I'm an autodidactic. Uh, I mean, I've been a lifelong reader. And, uh, and by the way, before I would go any farther, I wanted to compliment you on the music around here. I love, that. I love kids' choirs because that's what I used to do in school, my favorite thing was singing in choirs and singing in acapellas and I just there that's great music I just love it you know oh it's wonderful so but you weren't always a, a bass baritone no no I remember there was a time I was a tenor <laughs> long long ago but that that uh, that chip I've I've gotten rid of I've, I've spent my adult years cleaning my C drive <laughs> <laughs> I, I count I count my blessings on what I don't remember not on what I do remember so when you were a boy, I mean, you had unpleasant experiences in various boarding schools, but it sounds like the choirs were things that uh, brought you solace in a way. No, absolutely. I mean, well, art has always been that for me. Music has always been that way for me. Reading's always been that way for me. A place to hide out in uncomfortable situations. When I grew up with music, my mother was a professional singer with big bands when my father met her. She sang with Dorsey and Goodman and Paul Whiteman and that sort of thing. She started when she was 16. And... Uh, and, and knew everybody. I, I, was, I was so backward. I was 18 before I knew that Ella Fitzgerald was black and she was a constant visitor in our house. <laughs> it was just the music that counted. It was just the music. She just I, I showed up and sang. Yeah, well, well I, you know, I, I grew up in, uh, one of the things I write about is I, I grew up in, a, in a, a very multiracial background in California, which is 
one of the great things I've always loved about California, which you don't find in other places, well, now you do, but uh, was the fact that I grew up with all kinds of Chinese and Filipino kids, and, you know, it was great growing up, you know, on the West Coast, and uh, especially in Monterey when I was there, but I've traveled all over the world. How were you, how were you taught to cope with your family's celebrity at the time? Well, my father never really talked about a whole lot. As a matter of fact, for years, I thought he didn't have a job. <laughs> Look, you know, everybody else's kids, you know, their fathers had bow ties and they had briefcases and they went off to work. And my father finished breakfast, light up a camel and go back upstairs to his room. So I had no idea what he did, you know. And, uh, and I never read any of his stuff until I went to high school, you know. There was, a, there was a recent documentary on the BBC about your father, uh, just, just on, they spent some time traveling around, and they were making a connection between sort of the income inequalities and the great population shifts uh, that are being talked about today and what your father wrote about in the, in, the, in the Grapes of Wrath, which they called, throughout the documentary, the Grapes of Wrath. Oh, yes, I, Wrath is always more important than wrath. Yeah. You know, uh, what about that? Yeah, so would you, uh, when did you become conscious that your father, you know, did he, t did he talk about a social, social conscience or... Or the you know what he had gone through in that in that time. Never. Never. No, he figured he'd read the book, forget about it, move on, do something else. But he was a man who just really. I, I was thinking the other night. I was talking to somebody else. And I don't remember my father ever talking about his father, mm. ever, mm. which really amazed me. He talked about his mother a little bit, who was very powerful in his life. Uh, Olive, she was quite a character. I never got to meet any of my grandparents on my father's side because they had him when he was when they were fairly old and he had me when I was 40 when he was 44 so I mean they're all sort of much older than I was and uh, my father didn't really want children my mother sort of snuck us across on him <laughs> which had a lot to do I think with the ultimate divorce it was like you know that's a joke I can't handle any longer and uh, but he, he tried to be a good father as you know for a man that was totally unprepared for the job it was it was interesting I mean when I, when I told uh people about uh, having you gone on the show, uh, I guess a couple of years ago, so ago now, and, and then now, that, that it was really kind of strange that your father came along in a time before shows such as this, before film and video, and there's very little footage of him around. And I just had this, and I don't know when you look in the mirror if you see your father or you see your father's hand or something, but it's, it's like, you know, there's this odd connection with, you know, with him in this way. I don't know if you feel that or... Yeah, but I actually look more like my grandfather. If you uh -huh. look at pictures of him, I look more like my grandfather. But the confusion does arrive. I tell this story about some an old couple at the Steinbeck Center when I was first visiting that little shop of horse and uh, <laughs> in Salinas, which my father would have burned down if he'd known anything about it. And they were over in the corner. They were the only other people in the place, and they were arguing. And every time this woman tried to make a point, this octogenarian woman, she'd stab her husband underneath the table. To get a point, he'd wince and everything. As we were walking out, my wife and I were walking out. So we walked by, and she turned to him and stabbed him one more time. Said, "I told you he wasn't dead." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I began to catch on that there was some similarity there, you know. So I started taking advantage of it. Started trimming my beard the same way. I figured, what the heck, I could make a buck off of it. Uh, <laughs> but I don't make my my big money writing books. I, I'm a gaff writer for for Newt Gingrich. Is what. <laughs> How I make my big money. <clears throat> I steal everything from Jonathan Swift, but yeah, I, right, right, yeah. right. I got you, you give, you give uh, Gingrich's historical references. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. About how do you know? And you know what you're going to do with the poor? Eat them. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, that's where the big money is. 
Novels are just a sideline. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the Silver Lotus is is a is a wonderful book, and the and the characters that you have in it, the the captain and Lady Yi, and and sort of the imagination taking us back to another time and the wisdom of trading. I mean, it's a this is a, a, a lovely adventure story. Well, Lady Yi came out and dragged me into the book, actually. She's a character I, I invented for a previous book, and she's just a small character, and I got to like her so much. And then I did a novella about her, which isn't published yet, uh, in later life after her husband dies. And I, I'm, one of those, I'm one of those writers that basically I let the book take me where it wants to go. I usually don't have a big... I have sort of an idea where I'm going, but pretty much I let the characters do the work. And I said, i got to know more about Lady Yi. And she's a composite of some people, women I knew um, in, in Monterey, uh, old Monterey. But she's a wealthy, extremely intelligent Chinese woman and very philanthropic who was forced to uh, do her philanthropy through a, through a shadow company because of the racism in, in Monterey. And I just loved her. And I just said, I want to write a book about her. So... This sort of is a is, is a prequel to a, a book I previously wrote, in The Shadow of the Cypress, which was um, uh, actually I, I've got to admit that I take a lot of revenge on Monterey. I write about it a lot, right? And because I don't have to live there, <laughs> <laughs> and so it, she take, it's uh, she was just one of those people that I really got to like and did a lot of research behind her, but. As I say, I grew up in, a, in, in the joy of, of, of a multiracial uh, background in California. And I got in, I mean, I'm, uh, I have uh, great passions for uh, uh, the early Chinese culture in, in California. And in the previous book, I suggest basically, uh, do like Menzies' book, 1421, and that some artifacts are found under a, a tree in Monterey that suggests that. Uh, uh, Admiral Zhang He basically discovered California before before Columbus even you know took ship, and uh, and that in fact the cypress trees of the California coast may have come from China. Well, no, they're called the Monterey cypress. The cypress trees are different all over. They're different kinds of them, but the, the quote unquote Monterey cypress uh, comes from China, and it was really a brilliant invention that the Chinese did. That there's only one thing that if you're a sailor that you really need a lot of, and you can't get anywhere else, and that's fresh water. Well, if you want to mark a piece of coastline where the fresh water is, you won't be able to see the rivers or anything else. So the Chinese would plant something that was uniquely Chinese. So when they were sailing by, okay, that's where the water is. We recognize the cypress, but people in Monterey say, well, it's our cypress, it's unique to us, and it's not. You know? But I've been dealing with that idea since I was very young, because my father told me when I was a kid about how they'd found Chinese anchor stones in Monterey Bay that were 600 years old. And I whoa, that's really interesting. And he said he'd even seen the stern stern portion of one of Zhang He's gigantic ships. And some of these ships are like 480 feet long. They're like the largest sailing ships in the world, literally. And the stern post on this one boat before the Army Corps of Engineers came out and ripped it all out to widen the canals on the American River uh, was 35 feet high, which would have made the ship of, of at least 290 feet long. And it sort of wandered up there. So this idea fascinated me. What fascinated me most, though, was the idea that what would the Chinese do when they found out about this? And the one thing they do immediately is try to hide it from all the white people because they were already under the gun. And they don't, oh, my God, what, what would happen if the Chinese thought they actually owned California? Guess what? They've owned it for about 275 years. <laughs> They've made more money off of us than we ever made off of them. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the trade items in, in the Silver Lotus is uh, 
ginseng, mm-hmm. American, Ameri- American ginseng, and you and you have uh, uh, the trader uh, moving it from the east coast of America to China and figuring out how to make a huge profit on it. Uh, and this was sort of an aspect of American trade I'd never been aware of. Well, I wasn't either, except that I was, I was, I've always been fascinated by Chinese medicine. And I've taken ginseng a lot in my life until I was told by a Chinese doctor that's the kind of thing you should only do when you're in your 60s and your 70s. You shouldn't take it when you're young because immortality is considered bad taste among the Chinese. Uh, uh, though they've searched for it often, it's, you know, outliving your time is not considered a very good thing to do. But, as, and to this day, American ginseng, if you look at the, on the general ginseng markets, it's like, you know, buying anything else. American ginseng is more valuable to the Chinese than Chinese ginseng. About two to one, because it's wild ginseng. And the American Indians gathered it and used it. And it's very difficult to gather and to find because it's a very innocuous little plant. And I love the way the Indians found it, though they would uh, go out at night. It has a flower that glows, that like, is almost iridescent in, you know, in the moon. Bioluminescence, or, or it just reflects the light? It's like a bioluminescence. And they would go out, and they'd go wandering around. And when they saw a little glow, they'd fire an arrow at it. Then they'd come back and look for the arrow when it was daylight, and somewhere nearby would be that little ginseng root, because it's got little tiny leaves on it. It's next to impossible to find in the woods. And I guess it's because it's rarity, and the Chinese love anything that's completely rare, and it was very rare, became more important than Chinese ginseng, and it is to this day. American wild Indian, they call it Indian ginseng. And how do you come across these, these stories? I've got a brain full of completely useless information. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I never remember the things that I should remember, and I constantly remember things that mean absolutely nothing to anybody but me, you know. I'm looking for that chip. Oh, the, the memory chip. I mean, I, so I can clean out my C drive more. I, I like that. I did, I, I'd love that thing, the, the rowling thing about, you know, pulling things out of my brain. It, it's like snot, almost. You keep, <laughs> let's pull that out. You know, there must be some... It does have a mucusy kind of quality to it, I think. Doesn't it? That, that's what I thought. Yeah, I thought, put it in a bowl, forget about it, empty the bowl. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, you also seem to love 19th century sailing. I've always loved sailing. I've always been a maritime fanatic, and uh, I got my en- engineer's license. So before I got married, I was actually going to go back to sea on container ships because uh, it's not like the old days anymore. There's like no tappets to oil. You know, you sit in a gigantic room, looks like a power station, monitor the computers, you know, on a clipboard, and then hand it in and then go to your cabin. And I was going to go to sea and write. And just you know, do stories, and because uh, that's also been you know, the home to a lot of stories too. If you want to hear some great lies, you've got to go near a harbor and hang out with sailors, or or bush pilots if you like that kind of thing. I hung out with a lot of bush pilots too. Do you, do you go to the far north to Alaska? No, no, I haven't been in, in many years. I've done it a long time ago. I took the inland uh, cruises, right? No, I'm not into radical statements of of weather, which is why I stay in California. <laughs> There's, there is such a thing to me as too hot and too cold, and I've experienced both of them and like neither one. You know? So where have you been that's too hot? Uh, Vietnam was a really good place. North Africa was, is really fun if, you, if you're into sweating from places you didn't know existed. Um, Texas. I mean, I've been in a lot of places that are really uncomfortable. My grandmother owned ranches in, in Arizona, and as you know, grandchildren are basically unpaid labor. And... <laughs> To this day, I can't look a horse in the face. You know, I just I hate them. <laughs> and what about cold? Cold play? Where have been cold? Oh, cold. Well, any place you know, north of New York City, you know, you know Connecticut, uh, you know, Avon Prep School in December, you know, you know some... windows and no insulation. 
So Mary McCarthy, writing in Memories of a Catholic Girlhood, would talk about getting into cold, wet, they hadn't been dried sheets. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did that happen to you, too? Oh, yeah. I mean, they just sort of, actually, I remember going to school that when it was really, really cold, and we had these rooms that looked like ship's cabins, actually. They were really cute with the bed and then drawers underneath it and this little closet. And when you pull the sheets back, you could hear the cracking of the ice on the sheets, right? which is where I learned the joys of pajamas. Because I used to sleep naked as a child until I went to school and realized you were going to die of frostbite, you know, if you slept naked. So flannel suddenly became a big thing in my life when I was young, you know, get all dressed up to go to bed. So, okay, so you got distracted going to see, you wanted to go to see. Uh, how old were you at the time when you wanted to do that? Oh, this was like, uh, I've been married for 16 years. It was just before I got married. And then I decided that there were you know, one or two choices that I could either like date a bunch of guys <laughs> and foreign ports or get married. And I, I much prefer the, the second choice. And I, I don't regret one inch of it at all. I really don't. Uh, how did the two of you meet? Uh, we were friends. For, we, you know, she, my wife was a producer and we were friends. And we just, I, I finally found out the ultimate secret. Ultimately, is don't ever marry for quote unquote romance. Marry your best friend. Because that'll last for a real long time. And she was my best friend. And I said, why would I want to leave this? And also, she's also been my best agent and my best promoter. And she's also my editor of First, uh, of first Degree. If she falls off the perch, I know what I've written is really terrible. Okay, so did she know that you were going to go to sea to write stories and, and said, uh, Tom, please don't, no, don't no, go down? Not at all. Uh, no, I, I actually had to drag her kicking and screaming into a relationship with my family. Uh, she'd already had a rather unique one of her own, and she wasn't looking forward to acquiring any more. But um, no, I just, it, it just, things just sort of happened, you know, that, right. and I sort of let it go. And, uh, but I, I did, I did want to write, but I, you know, I had the natural complications of being who I was and writing. So I was doing screenplays and adaptations and documentaries and that sort of thing. And then that first book that we talked about was an accident. You know, literally, I wrote it for, for Old Man Post and for, Michael Fried of the Post Ranch Inn. And then some professionals saw it and said, yeah, we want to publish this. It was going to be like a private publication given away to hotel guests at the Post Ranch Inn. I don't know if any of you know where that place is. Lovely place. Yeah, if you can afford it. I can't even get comp to room there. I think, I think it starts out at $1,400 a night or something. No. No, it, it's very expensive. It starts out at like four or $500 a night. We've got a lovely restaurant right on the cliff. Yeah, that's the only reason I go. I, they let me up there to eat. <laughs> You know, but and I've and I've known the post. My my grand my father, cowboyed for Bill Bill Post just died recently, and his, his lovely wife just died a little while ago. But my father, uh, when he was a boy, like a lot of boys in Salinas, cowboyed for the uh, the ranchers in the in the Big Sur, uh, under the premise which is used by all ranchers is that boys bounce and men break, and if you have to cowboy up and down hills, you want someone who bounces. Because you know a, a cowboy with a broken leg is not good to anybody. So, I, I've just known them forever, and I and I've loved stories from the oral tradition. And you hang out with farmers and sailors. I think one of the reasons I've always been attracted to them is the storytelling. People sit down and just tell the longest stories. I love listening to stories. So, farmers, bush pilots, harbors, sea captain. Where else do you hang out for stories? Right now in here. Your head. Yeah. No. I mean, all, all all of the crap that I've acquired over these years is now finding a place to be, and and now I've got actually something you know technically that I I uh, 
I've learned that if you want to create an object lesson of one kind or another, don't lecture anybody. Insert your comments and your thoughts into a, in, into a, a plot and a dialogue and let your audience come to its own conclusions about what's going on. Never lead your audience. You know, just say, this is this and this is that. And what do you think about it? Which is, I, I'm, my next book is, because uh, I've always been sort of very politically, uh, shall we say, upset. <laughs> the Vietnam War did that to me. And so I decided, I've been for some years been working on a book about my favorite founding father, my favorite American hero, Benedict Arnold, who was basically led to his dirst of, of uh, uh, traitorism by his beautiful, very beautiful and, and marvelous wife, Peggy Shippen. Now, wait a minute. Dirst? Did you see Durst? Yeah, Durst. How, how's that spelled? D-U-R-S-T. And what's it mean? I Durst? have no idea. I have no idea. Sorry, Peggy Shippen. I was just curious. Okay, no, I just... I, I was, I was, oh, oh, Durst, uh, in this particular case, means sort of uh, political uh, disinterest. In the old-fashioned term, you know, trying to be balanced about this, and and uh, sort of raised. Cause I've always loved history, and I've always loved American history, and and which I find out more and more and more, you know, is basically flavored with some of the most vicious criminality you can imagine, going all the way back to uh, Thomas Jefferson. Who, by the way, when you think about the Cox Network, um, Thomas Jefferson literally bought and started a newspaper just so he could screw with John Adams. It's true. And no one knew he owned it. And he financed the whole thing just so he could make John Abbs' life a complete misery. And, that, and I just said, well, this is, where, this is where we're beginning. Working for Newt's nothing. Yeah. You know, I can, I can draw stuff out of, the, out of the woodwork for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Forgive me, Newt. I don't even know the man, actually. I just, <laughs> I, just, I just think it's funny when people ask what I do. I say, I'm a gaff writer for Newt Gingrich. I thought. <laughs> What, 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 I like to lie a lot. Yeah. 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 What, was, what was that Herman Cain line that was, uh, you know, when he was being asked about Libby? He said, I got a lot of stuff twirling around in my head. <laughs> and for a moment, I had sympathy with him. You know, <laughs> don't we all have a lot of stuff twirling around in our head? Oh, I do all the time, which is why I have to write for a living. Yeah. Because I've got to do something with it. Because yeah. I've already bored all my friends with it. <laughs> you know, I just, and the only way I can get a broader audience is by putting it in print. Well, let's go back to Benedict Arnold for a second. I mean, he, he was a, an American patriot for a long time. Then he was viewed as a traitor. I can't remember the particular sin. He was, he was well, hungry. He, he basically, with, with the help of Major Andre, who was executed for the crime, the, the execute, which, which starts out my book, was uh, it, it really comes down to simply this. Uh, there was a whole group of people, and by the way, they didn't, Paul Revere didn't right away saying the British are coming, the British are coming. He said the regulars are coming, the regulars are coming, because they were British. Paul Revere was British. They were all bloody British. What the war was about was to regain rights as British citizens, right? And that's what Benedict Arnold went to war to do, which is a great English tradition. It was a civil war. But it was the first English civil war that was fought off island. It was fought in the United States, but it became a civil war between Englishmen, right? And, Benedict, and then one day, Benedict, someone told Benedict Arnold, yeah, well, we're going to go for independence. He said, wait a second now. That's not what I was in this for. I wasn't in this for independence. This is something that Sam Adams and John Adams and the rest of these guys cooked up while he was off trying to take Quebec and, you know, fighting, you know, fighting his brother, Englishman. The Sons of Liberty. The Sons of Liberty. And like George Washington, George Washington's greatest ambition in life was to be a British officer. And when they turned him down as a colonial officer, he got, got really huffy about the whole thing, decided to start his own country. And... Uh, <laughs> 
And Benedict Arnold was the same thing. He was fighting for his rights as an Englishman. And then all of a sudden, someone came up and said, well, we're going for independence. And he said, oh, no, we're not. Because Peggy Shippen was a Tory. Her father was a famous Tory judge. George Washington attended their wedding. I remember that, that at the time of the American Revolution, about a third of the population wanted independence, a third wanted to stay British, and a third were sort of indifferent. And, well, they were uh, Germans. They could afford to be indifferent. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to work out for them either way. You know, they had, George, they had a German king on an English throne. It wasn't, you know, it was going to work out for them, but... And the English later had a German, have German royalty now, right? Yeah, but they had German royalty then. Yeah. George III was German. He was a Hanover. That's how we got Hessians, is because he started buying soldiers from his neighbors in Hesse. And, uh, yeah, he was a Hanoverian. And, uh, but that, I just thought I was very amused by that, because I, I had a lot I wanted to say about American politics, but I couldn't say it under my own name. But if Benedict Arnold said it, you know, then everybody would forgive me, you know. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you say it under your own name? Well, because I would, I'd, I'd be considered unpatriotic for me to point out the fact that Americans are not quite who they think they are. And we're not quite as great as we think we are. And we have a tendency, to basically, to uh, duplicate the errors of our enemies, one way or the other, as we're doing again. I mean, I really thought when I was in Vietnam, and I, I, you said I, I went to Vietnam for Armed Forces Radio and Television, but I got there the second day of Tet 68 and spent almost a year as a door gunner. Okay. A door gunner in a helicopter? Helicopter, right. It's called a malassignment. I was, I was, literally, I was MOS to go to Armed Forces Radio and Television in Saigon. I've, have you seen Good Morning Vietnam? Well, that was the unit I was assigned to go do. I said, oh, I can do this, right? But I wasn't trained to shoot, you know, total strangers from a helicopter. Family members, yeah, but <laughs> not, not total strangers, you know? And it was very, very upsetting. It was, you know, it said, what are we doing here? I mean, I was raised to believe that I, as an American, my job was to fight for people's ability to have whatever they wanted in their own country. And here I'm, you know, fighting a bunch of Vietnamese and all they want is one country. And I'd figured out how to stop the war. But your, your father was in favor of the war. As a matter of fact, there's a book coming out of all the, of, of his, he did a thing for Newsday, and there's a new book coming out about all the stuff he sent back from Vietnam, which almost destroyed his career. Uh, what, there wasn't a lot of career left there uh, at that point because he wasn't writing a great deal. But he, yeah, he was a hawk. But this only comes out. Only people who've never served in the military can afford to be hawks, right? Wars are started by them. You know? And uh, whereas I, on the other hand, I work with the, with the Wounded Warriors program, and I do a lot of work with veterans. And by the way, you're about to see an inundation of some very, very unhappy and very ill people very soon, about 80,000 of them are going to come back and need therapy and a great deal of help, and I don't know what we're going to do about that. I've been dealing with the VA recently myself, because I, they've suddenly, after years and years of me fighting with them, saying, listen, I've got all kinds of stuff I can't account for, and I think it comes from Agent Orange, which, by the way, was, we were flooded with this stuff all over the place, and they said, oh, no, no, it can't be Agent Orange here. You know, take another Tylenol with codeine, <laughs> come back and see us. And suddenly the VA suddenly came out with a listing saying, oops, we were wrong and a three-page list of diseases, including hemochromatosis, which is supposedly genetic, which Agent Orange causes. You know, I knew it did something, because every time we sprayed it, everything underneath it died. You know? And they sprayed, they, the reason they sprayed it was to clear the foliage so that the Vietnamese couldn't, it was about fields of fire, you know, to create the separation. The monkeys fell out of the trees, the birds died on the ground. I said, this is going to cause some problems somewhere. Well, it's still causing problems. And you go to what's called the American War Museum in Saigon. Right. There are photographs of, of people who to this day are still affected by it. Oh, yeah. and, it's, and, it's the, and it's the single 
uh, sort of stalling point in negotiations between you know Vietnam and the United States is what to do about it was a Dow chemical product, right? Oh, yeah, it was a cocktail of chemicals. It wasn't just one chemical. It wasn't just one. No, actually, the guy who invented it went to a complete state of remorse and. I don't know whether he committed suicide, but he, he literally, it, it just, it, it broke his heart that he had anything to do with this. Well, okay, so uh, you've written this, this, this wonderful novel called The Silver Lotus. You've also got a lot to say that I think, you know, under your own name, why not? Well, I mean, I will eventually. I mean, how can Benedict Arnold write about Agent Orange, for instance? Well, it, well, to some degree, what, what this has to do with, what Agent Orange has to do with, it's one thing to have the enemy kill you. But if, most, if you've ever been in the military, you know that most soldiers don't die of bullets, they die of disease. And that's really been true of every war in the history of mankind. Soldiers die of disease, they die of neglect, they die of, you know, everything but bullets in most cases. And, uh, but in my own name, I, because of one of the reasons I said before is because I like letting my audience create its own understanding of what is really true. And I, I chose Benedict Arnold because here's a case in which, a, quote unquote, a, a novel government is getting a lot of its own people killed for, you know, uh, by men who've never been in the military, like John Adams and Sam Adams and all these people. And Thomas Jefferson, who was, as far as I'm concerned, was a political coward. Um, and, oh, and literally- Them's fighting words. I know. But he, he deserted his own, he deserted Virginia when the British showed up. He didn't even stick around. He, he left the state when the British showed up. And, uh, but the reason I chose him was uh, because there are a lot of parallels in the way that Americans deal with each other from a military and uh, a political prospect. Uh, this whole thing in Afghanistan makes me crazy. I mean, I literally had to go find a therapist. I wasn't getting any sleep. I thought I'd fought in the last really stupid war America was ever going to fight. Boy, was I wrong. You know, there, I mean, I've, there's no such thing as an intelligent war. And the one thing my father did say, if you had to, if you have to take a, shed another man's blood to make your point, then you haven't really sussed out the argument really well. You know, there's so many other ways around it. And I'd, I'd actually gotten a lot of trouble. I'd figured out a way, and I published this under my own name. This is why I don't do this, okay? I did this, this story about how to, how to basically win the Vietnam War, which is really easy. And it came about because the defense industry had determined that it was costing American people about a million and a half dollars to kill every Vietnamese soldier that we were killing. Okay? And they suggested we down the price a little bit. Now, I know guys in Chicago will do it for you for 50 bucks. Okay? And I said, well, what's the big problem here? They're communists. I said, well, if it's going to cost that much money, if it's going to cost $500,000 to kill every Vietnamese soldier, what if we just bomb them with cash, <laughs> right? If you just have millions of dollars worth of cash all over the jungle, I guarantee you, a guy with $100,000 in his pocket can't afford to be a communist. He needs to find a bank real soon. <laughs> and an investment broker. He's, he's got to become a capitalist immediately or either paper his house with like $20 bills. You know? So I wrote this up and, and I got in a lot of trouble. I, I can't imagine why. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Steinbeck, his new novel is called The Silver Lotus, and it's published by CounterPoint here in Berkeley. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. It's been fun again. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.